Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. My name is Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Staub, two attorneys here with Pasha Law. And welcome to the podcast today. We are doing the ultimate legal breakdown of social media production. But today we have some special guests to give us some little insight on the marketing side of things. We have Tyler Sickmeyer and Kyle Weber, two marketing gurus. I think, Kyle, you're in Tennessee, right? And Tyler, you're in, of course, San Diego. I'm yes, aware sir. Yes, that's correct. Thanks for having us on, guys. Yeah, thanks. Definitely. I We definitely appreciate it. At the top here, I do want to kind of give some background. Tyler, why don't you give us a good introduction of what you and your company does and, and how you service companies. Uh, we, we basically have similar crossover with clients. So tell us a little about that. Absolutely. So, so Fidelitas is a full service marketing and ad agency based in San Diego and Nashville. We work with clients across a variety of channels, both digital and traditional, including social media, which we'll talk about today. And we like to serve as more of a strategic partner on our side of things. So we like to come in and help guide clients through the actual strategy of why we're posting what we're posting rather than just throwing something up because it's Tuesday. So we need to throw up another cat photo and we try to keep it relevant and make sure that we can actually quantify the uh, ROI for our clients on the back end of the campaigns as well. So that's a little bit about us. I love cat photos, but yeah, and Tyler and Kyle have also their Lionshare podcast. We'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. We actually just cut an episode with them earlier today, so I'm looking forward to hearing that as well. Okay, so let's get into our stories today. What are we talking about today, Matt? What's the first first topic? Well, the first thing we have here, it's and maybe some of you might have seen it in the news, but this company based out of it's actually a couple of college students uh, at Arizona. Sunny Co. Clothing ran this publicity stunt through their Instagram, basically saying, I'll, I'll summarize it here, sharing is caring. Everyone that posts this photo, and it was a, a woman in a, a bikini, in the next 24 hours is going to get a free Pamela Sunny suit, which is the bikini. So they post this, try to get their name out there. You know, they figured maybe we'll get a couple couple bites on this and you know, more people will know about us. Well, the problem is sort of backfired as they ran this and let's see, more than 3,000 people had reposted the image and they actually had to cut the post up before the 24 hours they initially put. They kind of backtrack on that too. But basically they ran into the issue of, this is the issue that I guess some companies have is they run this marketing campaign and they don't really think it through before they just do it. They kind of just push the send button and see what happens. And there's a problem with that. As you can see with this company, they basically ran through way more than their inventory was. And now they're at the stage of having to try to figure out some sort of solution to it. So the issue here is, I guess for Tyler and Kyle, so have you guys ever had a had an issue with this with any sort of client and maybe they wanted, wanted to run some promotion and you know it kind of caught fire more than they were anticipating? Yeah, we try to make sure that our clients think things through in advance of the campaign from a best case, worst case scenario. You, you know, we like to make sure that all options are on the table. So that way, you know, if something does take off, the client's not going to be hamstrung fulfilling orders. And we like to usually make sure that there are some disclaimers in there to protect the client from the campaign side of things. But it's tough, you know, I mean, so a lot of times we find that campaigns like this aren't executed with the help of an agency. It's usually someone that's well-intentioned in-house that, 
bites off a little bit more they can chew without factoring in all the costs, which is actually pretty ironic because you'd think that in-house marketing leaders would be less susceptible to such things because they're aware of the cost, but they probably hollered across their office and said, hey, can we comp some swimsuits for a social campaign? And someone said, sure, and no one ever thought to quantify how many some swimsuits actually was and uh, and stuff like that. And I think, you know, we've seen issues like this in the past, even with like bakeries and donut shops, and it's put people out of business before with the wrong types of promotions. And so it's very important to make sure that any promotion you run is still profitable when you factor in, we call it the lifetime customer value, or it's often referred to as the CLV. It's very important for marketing leaders to figure that out ahead of time. So for example, to cross industries for a minute on the car side, there's a reason why Mercedes will sell you a $48,000 car. They're entry-level cars because they want to capture your brand loyalty and give you a great experience so that they can sell you three or four more cars over the course of your life. So again, that comes down to building that brand loyalty early. And Mercedes has it very much dialed in as to what their lifetime customer value is. And so sadly, it doesn't look like the swimsuit company thought that through. And as a result, they've got some serious issues on their hands. And the lesson of the story is always hire an agency. <laughs> Yeah. And those are the non-legal ramifications. We didn't even got into some of the legal ramifications of basically doing a contest without any kind of terms and conditions and promotion rules. And that's pretty basic. And the problem is, is people dive into these promotions because maybe they've seen this and others and don't realize that, okay, yeah, not only do you have to figure out whether you have enough swimsuits to give to everybody and you can afford that and et cetera, but also you may have to register your so-called sweepstakes with certain states, depending upon how much, what's the value of the product that you're giving away. Right. And and this is a big area of law that I think really goes unnoticed. You were, these promotions can fall into different categories. There's contests, there's sweepstakes there, and some of them can even be considered lotteries. And you hear the word lottery and you're like, well, this is, I know what a lottery is. This, this promotion isn't a, isn't a lottery, but in terms of the legal definition, a lot of these contests that people and companies are running would fall under illegal lotteries. And so it's very important, like Nasser said, a couple things. One, you got to have the terms for these promotions up. You know, they have to have certain things, depends, it varies state by state, but there are certain terms that need to be in there and certain disclosures that need to be made. And then two, you need to have this properly classified. If it is going to be a sweepstakes or a contest, et cetera, it might need to be registered. You might need to have a bond that's in place. And some of these things need to be done, you know, 30 days in advance. You have to look to see what the total value is of what you're giving away. Uh, there, there's all these different things that fall into place. And like I said earlier, it could be a situation where what you think you're running is just a run-of-the-mill contest, but it in fact could be an illegal lottery. So these are things that, again, need to be vetted from the beginning. You really need to think this through. And if it's a situation where you might be kind of running into that gray area of, of a lottery, you, you might want to rethink what you're doing and, and kind of adjust the way you go about it. Absolutely. So, okay, so let's, let's go on to a next topic. Now, I'm sure you guys, Tyler, Kyle, have ran promotions where you get an influencer to put a sponsored post. It's a pretty effective uh, means of marketing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. it's much like the uh, advertorials used to be effective in newspapers back in the day. Now the, the, the social influencer route is a great way to get around the algorithms that platforms like Instagram and Facebook use to filter the amount of brand posts an individual sees in their newsfeed that aren't promoted. Oh yeah, that's true. And now, it's very difficult now to 
get your product out there unless you're paying for it. And so I suppose, you know, getting someone else that has a ton of followers is a good way to do that. But there's been some, I should say, sponsored posts gone wrong. We just talked about this swimsuit and how people just fall into these kinds of basically old laws. Or let me back up for a second. You know, when we're talking about the ultimate legal breakdown of social media promotion, a lot of these legal issues aren't new. It's just that because of the accessibility to overnight run a contest, people run into these problems. Because in the past, like, you know, if you are McDonald's and are doing some kind of monopoly promotion, you'd have to take months and months of planning and a lot of costs involved. But this is, you know, just a matter of putting a post up there. You get into a lot of issues. Same way with sponsorships. Sponsorships aren't new. Endorsements aren't, aren't new. But when it comes to social media, the accessibility is a lot easier. So, Matt, let, let's talk about what the FTC recently did. Yeah, so the, and I think it's it's going to kind of connect to a, a recent event we'll talk about it as well. But so the FTC sent out this, basically kind of this blast, I, I believe about 90 different influencers and, and marketers basically saying, look, a lot of these ads that are running aren't following FTC rules. And we're just letting you know, we're, we're making you aware, putting you on notice that what you're doing might not be in line with the rules and regulations that are in place. Basically, kind of to summarize it up here is, if it is an ad, it has to be clear and conspicuous. Those are the key words to follow here. So if if it is, in fact, an ad, if, if say, you're an influencer or if you're the marketing company kind of running this, it needs to be very obvious that what's up there is, in fact, an ad that's sponsored. And we say that, I, you know, I even listening to me say it now, it seems like it's... It's a very obvious thing to follow, but I think just for the reason that we saw the FTC send this out to to all the people that it did, that it wasn't being followed. And if you look online, if you are on, go on social media and just take a look, I bet more often than not, you're going to find an ad that doesn't say that it's an ad or doesn't say that it's sponsored by you know whatever company or whatever brand is is behind it. Yeah. What do you guys think? Have you have you guys ever ever seen any of your influencers? when they do a sponsored post, actually give any of these kind of disclosures? Typically what we try to go for is just like, for example, in platforms where hashtags are appropriate, just hashtag ad AD tends to be sufficient. Sometimes it's interesting. We It could be considered more or less prominent, I guess, if it's one of the first or last hashtags versus if it's in the middle. But, but I do think it's, it, it is on the burden of the influencer to make sure that that's in there as well as the brand. But that's one thing we always make sure that we ask for in writing. So that way, if the influencer fails to post it, the burden is at least on them from our standpoint because we did request them to include it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really their responsibility where the FTC is going to get involved. Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think there's a huge temptation for a lot of social influencers too on platforms like Snapchat and Instagram where they have stories as well. You may follow people that have a couple million followers and they're posting about some detox tea that they're drinking, but it's not that they're really drinking. I mean, they might be drinking the detox tea, but they're also promoting it and it's up in an instant and then gone in 24 hours. So I think that there's a lot of temptation there but people should know. People should know that, you know, that is a brand deal that they had. And so when things go wrong, it's not just the influencers that can get in trouble, also the brand themselves. Have you guys heard of this fire festival? I know Matt goes every year. Yeah, I was there. At least the what I think it's only been one year, right? <laughs> I, I, I was scheduled to perform, but had to pull out at the last minute. In a red bikini. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it sounds like you guys are, are pretty familiar. You guys may have to help me kind of fill in the facts here. But basically, th there was this festival that apparently it's held in the Caribbean somewhere on some island. It was promoted as this, uh, I think it's the second time, second year that's been involved. It was started by who? Um, not Jay-Z, some other some other guy. Ja, ja Rule. Ja Rule. So it started with a J. Ja Rule and some other uh, gentleman. What was his name? Sorry, I, I uh, B Billy McFarland, I think. Oh, that's right. So, so these two these two guys they promote this concert, this kind of like festival concert festival in the middle of the Caribbean, and kind of promoting as this VIP experience. And when people actually got there, they did not get a VIP experience. In fact, far from it. But the main point here is how they promoted it was most people didn't even know about it unless they knew about it through social media. They, they highly leverage these influencers to actually market this uh, event. Yeah, exactly. It's, it was pretty interesting that the whole buildup to it was exactly what Nasser just said. They found these people with huge uh, social media followings who were posting things. I, I think the headliner was Kendall Jenner. There's, and there was an ad or let's see a, well, there was an your Instagram post that she, yeah, well, yeah, we won't get into that. If we're talking but, uh, about where the train fell off the tracks, that's a great place to start. But that, I mean, you're right. And I think that goes, and I, I think that's a very obvious thing to look at is just, you know, look at how they were planning to, their whole plan in place was to get people to show up to this thing. It just wasn't built on a very sound foundation at all. And I, I don't think it's any surprise that this thing just crumbled into pieces once they actually tried to, to execute it and get people there. I mean, we'll post a link to the story, but people weren't even able to get from the airport to the event. You know, there was tons of all the musicians or a lot of the musicians kind of backed out of it, such as Tyler. I don't know what he was going to perform, but as he said, it's, he, he wasn't the only one that did that. It was just a, from the beginning, this thing was a disaster and it wasn't from, I guess, let me, I want to get your guys' take on it from the marketing perspective. I mean, this is just bad from the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah. It's funny. This actually, uh, hits a little close to home. I don't know if you guys know this, but in a former life before I launched uh, Fidelitas, I actually used to do concert promotion and that led, into, that, that led into consulting other promoters. And so in this time when I had, st back in uh, the late 2000s, when I had stopped promoting shows myself and hadn't started Fidelitas yet, I was consulting other promoters and I was hired to help promote uh, what, what turned out to be a rather dubious event in Tennessee. And I, and I can't go into all the details, but I, I, I can share that the promoter was literally arrested at the venue day of show. Uh, craziest thing <laughs> I ever saw in eight years of concert promotion. And, and I, I almost expected him to be involved with this. Like, this was like totally up his alley. He, he's actually, a, a, I'll share his name off air. You can go Google him. But he used to, uh, he, he used to pull this, these kind of stunts all over the world. He actually was behind an event in Sydney, Australia. It was supposed to be some sort of concert at the zoo. And the running joke was that the concert goers were living like animals. Like there weren't enough outhouses. It was just a complete disaster. That was, I think, only a year or two ago. So it's kind of surprising that he wasn't involved with this because this definitely has his fingerprints <laughs> over it. But uh, anyways, I, I, I don't think it's as much a poor marketing effort other than, of course, there's no truth in the advertising that they put out other than just poor planning. I mean, they clearly, uh, and this is often the problem when it comes to concert promotion is they have half the money raised that they actually need to pull off the event and they bank on ticket sales covering the rest. 
uh, which is a, obviously a horrible way to go about it because if ticket sales are slow, they, they have to pay the social influencers up front, you know, whether they got 250,000 for a post or a million for a post. And it sounds like at least from one article I read, they had around a hundred million dollar ad budget for this thing. So if that's your upfront expense, that doesn't leave much money to actually pay talent to show up. And the other mistake that dubious concert promoters will make is they'll promote that an act is coming before they're actually signed on the dotted line. So I'd be willing to wager that most of these performers that quote unquote backed out never signed a contract to appear in the first place. What you described is probably spot on because uh, we we have even a friend of the firm that actually did go to Fire Festival and she described how she bought her tickets back in November or October of last year and she bought the VIP experience. But then over time, she kept being encouraged by the promoters to upgrade to like a VIP VIP experience that didn't exist before. And like and obviously efforts to keep raising more money and sell more. And I mean, a hundred million dollars for uh, upfront costs. I mean, I, they, they did describe, I mean, they, they talk about now they have this whole long apology on their website, basically that they actually charted, let's see, charted 737 planes to shuttle guests back and forth. So they, they did seem to make efforts to prepare, but you know, uh, this particular friend of the firm describes how when she went there, like it was uh, the catering, the so-called catering that she upgraded was just horrible. I saw images on Twitter basically of a cheese sandwich, two pieces of bread and a slice of cheese with some lettuce as a, a side salad. And this is the kind of VIP experience that they were getting. But going back to the actual topic of this podcast, the result of this is, of course, this fire company or these promoters were sued in a class action. I think it was out of California that this was filed. But literally the next day, there was another lawsuit that basically sued all these promoters, including Kendall Jenner, I believe, and among many other influencers and celebrities that were had posted some of these sponsored posts. And then it goes begs the question, okay, what is their responsibility Really, this looks like a effort just to strong arm these celebrities to uh, put pressure on these promoters. Yeah, it, that is like Nazar said. It's I think that's the more interesting lawsuit. I'm, obviously, the festival, the people that put it on are, are going to get sued for it. But the to actually have another lawsuit brought here in California of all these quote unquote influencers. That'll be the interesting piece. And I, I think they're alleging things like fraud or negligent misrepresentation, unfair business practices, things like that. And I don't know if any of them are actually going to end up being liable for anything major or anything at all. But Probably not. It's interesting. But, but yeah. I bet you a lot of those posts didn't have clear and conspicuous notices that exactly. it was an ad. And that's, exactly. and that's kind of the thing that FTC is, is kind of warning about is that, hey, if you're posting something to promote a product or service and people don't know that you're being paid for it, then it's misleading because they feel like you're actually going there. And it made it seem like some of those posts, right, made it seem like they were actually going to be at the concert, which I I assume I don't think they went, right? Well, and it's probably sound, frankly, it's probably sound legal strategy on behalf of the plaintiff's attorneys to actually go after the influencers because Lord knows that the promoters aren't going to have any money. Even if you, sure, they're going to win the lawsuit, but what are you going to get for it? You can't bleed a turnip. I'm sure this organization is going to declare bankruptcy if it hasn't already. They are inviting. So after speaking with our potential partners, we have decided to add more seasoned event experts to the 2018 Fire Festival. I've already bought my tickets, by the way which will take place at a United States beach venue. But if you bought your VIP passes this year, you'll get free VIP passes next year. 
So, so I'm set, but uh, you guys, <laughs> you guys are just, probably, uh, from a logistical standpoint that just does already seems like it's not going to work, right? They have all, so basically anyone that was supposed to go this year gets a free pass next year. In addition to the other passes they're going to sell. I, I foresee problems with that, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. Well, at least it's in the United States. That's a little bit more manageable <laughs> in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of copyright uh, ramifications would there be for me to start selling I Survived the Fire t-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's some fair use exceptions there that well, we could talk about that offline. It's not a bad idea. Okay, so so speaking of copyright, I think this is a, it's a good transition to intellectual property ownership of these social media accounts. And again, like going going back to the concept of the show and the topic a lot of these a lot of these issues aren't new we're just taking old legal concepts and applying it to new technology which see a lot of times when technology comes about everyone's kind of trying to figure out how to react because this is something you know we're applying the same law to new facts but it's a lot more simpler than i think people make it especially since intellectual property has been around for a while but even social media has had a progression too and i think this is one of the older issues and I'm talking about when, let's say, you have an employee or even a marketing agency that creates a social media account for you, and that relationship ends, who owns that social media account afterwards? And the obvious desires for the company to own what's in their name, but sometimes it may not be as obvious as that. Yeah, and I think this is, it's two different situations. There's two different hurdles to clear. One, it's a... You know, do, do you have the the contract or the the legal framework in place to then take over that account? And then two, can you actually do it? I mean, because we say this all the time, it's you can have the contract that that gives you the the rights after this employee is terminated or this company is no longer working with you. Then you actually got to go out and, and enforce it. So I think we're this is going to be great to have Tyler and Kyle to to get their perspective on this. And I, they can't speak from experience because they have never been cut from any of the companies they're working with. But let's say hypothetically, you have, or let me let me ask it from a different perspective. Have you guys ever encountered a situation where you worked with a company where previously they're having maybe one of their employees run the social media aspect of things, and that employee was then terminated, and they brought you guys in? I mean, how what's the transition process, and how, how easy was that to? for you guys to, to take take over the process then? No, that's a great question, Matt. Oftentimes we find out that our predecessors didn't get things uh, set up in the most efficient way possible, no matter how well-intentioned they were. And then when you couple that with some salt in the wounds on their way out the door, maybe they're not happy that they're being replaced or it wasn't by choice that they're leaving. It can be tough to go ahead and get control of accounts. Fortunately, at least at Fidelitas, we're a Facebook partner. So we actually do have a phone number we can call and get on the line with Facebook and they can often help us fix situations. This is most common, especially for brick and mortar brands that have multiple locations and they need to have multiple pages set up. And sometimes a well-intentioned employee at one of the brick and mortar locations decides that he's going to set up a, a Facebook page for that specific store gets about halfway through and then just leaves it. And so it's really nothing more than a shell page with an address and a phone number on it. That can actually really hurt a brand's local SEO depending on how things are set up. So it's important for us to get those pages claimed and either deleted if it's a duplicate page or get it merged in with the brand's parent page. 
So that's one thing that we really try to tackle first and foremost. And Facebook can be a great asset for that. But otherwise, it's really the responsibility of brand and access to the page. So that's interesting, Tyler, because what kind of cooperation does Facebook have with you when you have a, basically a dead page or even a rogue page? How, how much are they willing to help you out in certain circumstances? Uh, it, it, it depends on the situation. Uh, and frankly, with the way Facebook is structured, they rotate your rep. So as an agency, because we spend a, a certain amount in each month in advertising, we have a rep with them that we can call. And they, they rotate their reps fairly frequently, I believe. And again, my team could verify this, but it's either once a month or once a quarter, we, we change reps. And some are more proactive than others when it comes to help. Sometimes we have to beg and plead our case for two months until we get a new rep and then it's taken care of in two days. So it, it really does depend, but uh, they're usually pretty good about helping us help a client. So as long as we can show that the page is the rightful property of our client, they're pretty good about jumping in and helping at that level. That said, I also know for, for the small businesses out there that are listening that don't have a Facebook partner agency like Fidelitas in their corner, it can be a little bit tougher because there is no phone number for you to call. It's quite tough to get that situation remedied. And a lot of times there's not a great legal remedy either because Facebook doesn't want to be wrapped up in kind of any kind of legal dispute. And from what we've found as well is that if you kind of start going the legal route, then they kind of take a step back, especially if there's two parties that are disputing the ownership. Now, a lot of times that's not the case. Sometimes, a lot of times you just have a former employee that's, like you said, that's abandoned it and so forth. But like, for example, if you have a bad acting marketing agency that's basically holding a Facebook page hostage and then the actual brand that's disputing over the ownership, that can be a very difficult situation. And I, we personally found that Facebook does not want to deal with that. And they'll just maybe with a DMCA request or basically telling them there's copyright infringement, they may shut the page down, but they won't necessarily transfer it to any particular owner. And so that's a very delicate situation. Because it's a lot of times if it's another company that's using your brand, then you can get that page taken down. But if you get a page that you actually want to use and it gets taken down, that's not actually very helpful from a marketing perspective, right? Because you already have all those likes and followers of that particular page. Yeah, that's a great point and great to consider as well. It's obviously different when dealing with a company. My advice uh, again, to go back and follow up with the small business situation, if it is an employee, oftentimes these are minimum wage employees. And for the cost of getting legal involved or threatening to sue Facebook or sending cease and desist letters, to me, uh, I would recommend for any small business to offer to pay the kid. It's probably a kid. I'd probably just offer to pay the kid 50 or $100 to get access turned over. It's much cheaper and less of a headache solution for the small business to just pay them off that way uh, in, in that case. Now, if it's a company, that is a larger issue. But I can say too, most marketing agencies do care about their reputation. So right. when, anytime you're holding something hostage, there, there's other ways you can go about it, whether it's calling them out on social media or leaving reviews or complaining to the Better Business Bureau. But I, I mean, frankly, I think there are other ways you could go about trying to escalate things without involving Facebook, which I would consider the nuclear option. Yeah. And I was trying to think about this. I mean, we used to get, I don't know, I would say like every few months or so we would, this issue would come up as far as some ex-employee, ex-contractor has our social media account and our credentials. But it seems like, I mean, I, I don't think that's been happening too, too much lately. And I just wonder is if perhaps people are getting smarter about this, that just making sure that you have the admin credentials 
may be enough. And, and when you give access to your Facebook pages or kind of management, you're not necessarily giving full rights because there are, like Kyle and Tyler, you correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, there, there are now more permissions than there used to be, right? It used to just be two roles, admin and, or maybe just one role, just admin. But now I think there's multiple roles, right? There are, yes. So, so it's interesting that, yeah, there's, there's actually four or five different roles. And then there's also what's called a business manager. So, so basically uh, you can, admins of the page can grant access to an agency's business manager account, which is a nice feature because it used to be that literally everything had to be tied. Like I remember if, if you rewind six or seven years ago when we were a smaller shop, I think Kyle and I were the admins on probably what yeah. 40 Facebook yeah. pages. Like yeah. it's just, you know, it's, it's just a lot. And there, there wasn't really a, a great way to go about it. And I mean, heck at one point we were frustrated because there wasn't even a way to link up different client credit cards for ads at the time. And now they've made that very simple with the business manager functionality on Facebook. And then, and then as a byproduct, uh, Facebook owns Instagram. So it's the same there. Obviously Twitter accounts can be a little bit more difficult, I think, to deal with even than Facebook. I think Facebook to its credit has gotten to be much more proactive, but Twitter is a whole different animal when it comes to trying to reclaim an account or even reclaim access. Frankly, what I would recommend in regards to Twitter is to create your account and then it actually might might help. I know everyone covets that blue check mark that they're a verified account. If you can prove that there's an imposter account out there or that someone's holding your other account hostage, it might be able to get your account verified and then it makes the other one a fake account and Twitter's likely to delete it. So you might be out a little bit of tweet history, but in the long run, you're actually in better standing for your own brand. And my biggest piece of advice I would say would be if you own a company or if you're doing marketing for a company, you need to be the one creating these accounts. That should be on your shoulders. I've seen too many cases where domains were bought by other marketing agencies or other people. And, and so even the business owner don't, they, they don't even have an account where they own their own domain and they can't renew it. And we've seen issues like that from our predecessors. And, and, you know, it can be a little bit tricky. We try and solve that though. And, you know, the main thing for us in, as a marketing company would be to protect our clients. You know, we want to protect our clients entities and make sure that, you know, they have everything that they need to be successful uh, that's my biggest piece of advice. Go in and create those accounts for yourself and then give access to whoever needs access. That's awesome advice. I and mean, obviously, and all those things, everything from how you handle Facebook and Twitter with the different roles, those are all, obviously, there's a lot of non-legal aspects on how you can protect your account ownership. And most likely, that's probably more important. Uh, I think when it comes to, and you mentioned domain names too, you're right. It's very common for when they hire an outside consulting company, oh, just buy the domain name for me. And even though maybe technically, legally, you may have ownership rights over that, it may not be as clear as some people may think if certain languages in the contracts don't exist. And so making sure that even, even if you have another company that buys the domain for you, having contractual provisions that make it clear that the ownership of the domain name is with the brand and that upon termination that the company that bought the brand, uh, bought the domain, cooperates with uh, transferring over that ownership over 
uh, when it comes to whether you're using GoDaddy or some other domain registrar. And the same thing with social media accounts, that if you're having, even if you have the social media accounts under someone else's name, that upon termination, they cooperate, they're obligated to uh, cooperate to turn it over. So at the least, if you can't get Facebook to transfer management or control, that you can fall back and, and get a court to order the, the actual brand manager to do so. Exactly. Spot on. All right. So I think, I mean, we covered pretty much, uh, like I said, I mean, it was a breakdown of social media when it comes to the legal perspective of things. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of other social media aspects that we we didn't cover from a non-legal perspective. But uh, I really appreciate you guys coming on. This was a good insight to the marketing world. Thanks. And uh, really appreciate you guys having us on. It was a pleasure to come on and talk shop a little bit. And I didn't realize that we were going to drum up my past as a concert promoter as well. So it's fun. That came in handy. And hopefully we'll see everybody. Most of our listeners are, are big Fire Festival goers too. So I'm sure we'll see you all <laughs> at 2018 on the beach. Uh, it, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I'm probably going to bring my own food this time just in case. I, I mean, you, you'll see my social media post uh, promoting this uh, concert for the next, next year or so. I may or may not give clear and conspicuous uh, notices that it's a sponsored ad. But okay, so so Tyler, Kyle, you know, thanks for joining us again. Just as a reminder, they're from Fidelitas. They do some really great marketing services. And of course, they have their podcast as well, which we were just on. So hopefully this episode and, and their episode will come out at, at, in similar time so you can listen to both. And there's some crossover too. We we do get into some of the same topics, but there's some, uh, there's some good information on, on the other episode as well. That, that's great. And, and the, uh, the URL for that is lionsharepodcast.com. The Lionshare Marketing Podcast is on iTunes and Stitcher and all other places you can find uh, great podcasts like ours. And rumor has it we're even going to record live at the 28th Power Festival. So- <laughs> oh, wow. All that's right. a mistake. I could already predict that's a mistake. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. Yep. Keep it sound, keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast, The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.